Hi, I'm Louise Mowbray, founder of Mowbray by Design and your host. Welcome to Lift, my conscious leadership podcast, Lead into the Future, today. I'm on a mission to bring you powerful insights and very human stories from leaders and entrepreneurs who are each, in their own way, contributing something noteworthy to shaping our world of work. Conscious conversations with people who are being conscious leaders and doing conscious business. My aim is to give you a personal lift to inspire you in your day-to-day business life. Make sure you subscribe now to never miss an episode. Today I'm talking to Charlotte Kemp, the futurist and professional speaker. Charlotte is a member of the Association of Professional Futurists and serves on the board of the Professional Speakers Association of South Africa. Charlotte is the author of four books, including the newly published Futures Alchemist. She's had loads of articles published in the media, appeared on radio and television, hosted her own radio show and today hosts a podcast. She's also organized numerous conferences and events over the 20 years that she's been speaking and training. As a futurist, Charlotte advocates conscious futures thinking. She loves exploring the origin and natural destination of changes in business and society, as well as understanding to what extent we can influence the major themes in our lives. I originally met Charlotte on a futures course in Stellenbosch a few years ago, and we've not only stayed in touch, but are collaborating on a number of projects for leaders and entrepreneurs. I wanted to talk to Charlotte about her new book and to hear more about her take on how we can all use futures thinking in today's world of work. Charlotte, I'm so excited to talk to you today about a number of things, and I'd love to start with your book, Futures Alchemist, which has just been published, A Journey of Discovery to Co-Create Preferred Futures. Give me a little background on this. Tell me where this originated from. I spent quite a bit of time uh, in my career teaching people how to use social media, and I know that it's an important thing that people need to learn and businesses need to get a grasp on, but I grew tired of teaching people how to tweet better. Uh, I didn't want to invest my life in making their tweets more memorable. Uh, and, and I started looking around for something that my audience was, was looking for. And the questions they were asking seemed to be answered by the futures thinking uh, uh, society, uh, the, the people who are in that space, the people who are studying strategic foresight. So I went back to university at Stellenbosch and started studying this course and did a whole lot more research around it. And you and I met in one of those, those workshops. Yeah. And eventually I, I, I really have embraced the, uh, all of the academic models that they teach in strategic foresight. And, and that's what I really appreciate is that it's not, we're not, having an experience of wishful thinking about the future and we're not um, just trying to design something that, you know, makes my future look better. But strategic foresight is actually based on a whole lot of very serious, well-researched models um, that help us to measure and make the future. And, uh, and that gave me comfort that I was working in, in a proper scientific field. Yeah, so interestingly enough, I think future studies go back 100, 200 years. Is that right? Yes, there's some very, um, there's some good history to future studies, but obviously a lot of the work has been done very recently. So some of the the best uh, and and most well-known names uh, in the world in terms of of these thinking models are still alive today. Um, We've had one or two people pass away in recent times, but, um, but it's, 
it has enough history to make it valid, but it's also such a new science that most people don't quite know what it's about. Uh, so I've had some people have a reaction saying, oh, no, this is, you know, too esoteric and uh, they don't want to do this woo-woo stuff <laughs> where they think we're just, we're just, you know, having positive thoughts about the future and we're going to make this future happen. But, but it's not like that. It's, it's about taking agency over the decisions we, uh, we make, uh, not leaving things to just roll out in front of us, but actually, you know, expressing our voice, voting on, on issues, standing up for things that we, we want to see or we don't want to see happen in the future. It's a very practical course. Absolutely. And um, yes, as you mentioned, we met on, on one of these um, courses and I was also very taken with futures and strategic foresight uh, and possibly just dipped my toe into this vast ocean of, of very useful models and practices and um, almost a philosophy in terms of how one might think about going into the future. I think traditionally, certainly in business, what we tend to do is work out a strategy for the future dependent on what's happened in recent past. And of course, you know, five, 10 years ago or prior to that, we'd be working in longer time scales to give us some indication of what the future might be, give or take, you know, 20% or the odd natural disaster or unexpected things that might occur. Whereas today, things are moving so incredibly fast, that really isn't a reliable way of setting out strategy for the future and being able to, to work to that. No, absolutely. I, I, and that's a part that a lot of people get uh, kind of distressed about. When you try and look at the future, there is actually so much content, so much happening, and, and such a, an incredible pace of change that it gets quite overwhelming. Um, in terms of what I do in the futures field is you know, I played around and looked at all of the different drivers, you know, the politics, the economics, the, the environmental issues, and, and any one of those is a valid space to, to play in. But when, when you look at this, there's, there's so much happening that it becomes overwhelming for people. So if you're not actually working in the space, how do you get a handle on it? And that's actually why I wrote the book, because I, I wanted to give some, I wanted to give people and uh, the people that, that work with me a handle on how to look at the future. So I started trying to write from that kind of academic perspective and say, these are the models and these are the ways you do it. And, and I found it a bit, uh, not dry, but still overwhelming. There, there was just so much. So one afternoon while I was writing the book, I, I thought, you know, it would be so much easier if I explained this particular issue as if it was a story. And then I totally reimagined the whole book. So the, the, the book is about three characters, a young 24-year-old um, girl, a 31-year-old entrepreneur in the fintech industry, and then a 58-year-old HR director. And they're all encountering these same futures conversations and they're discovering the models and they're seeing how they apply to their, to their work environment, to the companies that they work for, uh, to their own jobs and careers, to their own career paths. So what will their careers look like in the future and how can they help those around them and how can they create products? And, and all the way through, it's just looking at these same models in different perspectives. And I found that a lot, a lot more fun actually to write right. um, because then I was, I was thinking of real people and the problems and struggles that they have and how these models would, would apply. But for, for the characters in the book and for the people that I hope read it, um, as you're reading this, you, you, you get the sense of, while this is very big, there is a way to get a handle on it. Uh, there is a way to actually take action over not just my future, but the future of my 
my company, my industry, the city that we're in, and um, and then we can co-create the future that we actually want and not just be subject to what is happening. Fantastic. Well, I, I've started the book already and I'm thoroughly enjoying it. So, uh highly recommend anyone who's interested in the future from a, a slightly different perspective picking up a copy and I'll make sure that we post some links and what have you afterwards for people to be able to do that. I think what appealed to me most is that it doesn't come at this from a very dry academic perspective and as you said you didn't want to just repeat the same thing again and perhaps lose people along route. Uh, one thing I find with a lot of executives is when you talk about strategic foresight or futures, people are really unsure about what it means to build multiple futures and how one might do that and how you might incorporate it into your strategy along with your team and and various other stakeholders. What's your take on that? I think what has happened in all of our business studies in the past in business schools, we've been taught uh, to create a business plan. But the business plan uh, implies that there's one future. We're going to work towards this ideal future for our business. And yeah, you put in a couple of contingencies and things, but you have in mind the way you want it to go. And it very seldom works out that way. And it's not because we didn't try hard enough as as an entrepreneur or a business owner or that the teams didn't meet their KPIs or anything like that. We, We don't reach that one specific target because there are so many factors that can influence the path of a company. So when we look at, at multiple futures and, and in, in, in the academic fields, they actually talk about futures studies as a plural. They, they don't, um, you don't get away with ever saying that there's just one future. Um, we, we actually try and envisage multiple futures at the same time. So this kind of touches on the whole concept of scenario planning, which for a lot of people, that's it's either trends or scenario planning, which is their first introduction to futures thinking. So in scenario planning, we think, you know, what is the worst case scenario, best case scenario? And what we try to do is help people to create at least three robust uh, examples or descriptions of what the future could look like. And those three three different scenarios would be kind of our, our best case um, I don't want to say utopian, but, but this is the future we really, we would love it to look like this. And then the opposite would be, this is the future where things would be really tough to, to continue executing our business. And then there's a kind of middle of the road, muddling along path that, um, you know, we're getting some things right, but some things are happening. And it's not just the decisions within the company, it's also the external factors. So uh, what, in, what changes are happening in your industry what changes are happening to your consumers? How do they want to consume the product or service that you're offering to them? Uh, are they getting things easier from other industries that will make them look at your industry and say, gosh, you're old fashioned, uh, or wow, you're cutting edge. And then there's obviously uh, politics and there's values changes and there's social changes and there's environmental changes. You know, how does, you could have a really great business plan for tourism in Cape Town but then you have a drought and that's really going to affect things. And, and you can do whatever you want in terms of your marketing. But if you haven't addressed the issue of there's not enough water in the city, then you failed to prepare properly for a scenario. So, so when we design the scenarios, we, we design, you know, at least three different scenarios looking towards the future. And then we help people to identify the flags that would indicate the kind of the events, the data points that would indicate which, uh, which scenario path they're on. And it's not, we may prefer one to another, but the more open our minds are to the fact that 
this could go in different directions, the more prepared we are to respond. So if we have a couple of flags indicating that we're going towards our, uh, let's just say, you know, um, below the line scenario or our, our, our the, the scenario that we don't want to have happen, the worst case scenario. If we, if we see that we're going towards that, then we've already prepared mentally and we already have some ideas in terms of marketing. We already have some terms and uh, ideas in terms of, of management decisions about what we need to do to respond. Are we going to cut back staff? Are we going to increase advertising? Are we going to advertise for different markets? Uh, are we going to change our services? Are we going to, how are we going to respond? But if you've really worked through that as a management team before these things happen, then you're not reacting to a crisis. You're just pulling out that business plan for that scenario. And that makes us much more robust um, in terms of business and being able to succeed where others will fail because they were, they were anticipating a rosier future and things have not turned out that way. Yeah, absolutely. And a quick question around trends, because a lot of people buy into the latest trend. <laughs> and mm-hmm. we know that there are trends and then there are mega trends, you know, things that will stick around for some time to come. And I, the example that always springs to mind is Pokemon and augmented yeah. reality. So augment, augmented reality is here to stay, whereas Pokemon and various other applications may come and go. How would one be able to build in some sort of filter for trends or have an awareness of what may become a mega trend, something that's actually here to stay. That's so interesting. I mean, we also have a lot of experience with that, uh, the kind of the hype cycle where something comes along, everyone gets excited, everyone jumps on the bandwagon and tries to create a product around, you know, augmented reality or, or something like that. And, and then it kind of tapers off and everyone thinks, well, that was just a bubble. It's disappeared. It doesn't, you know, it was a fad, not even a trend. Uh, and then quietly in the background, other people are working on things and finding the actual real business cases, the business use cases for these, um, these products. And, and that's what we want to, to understand. So again, a, a lot of it is awareness. It's saying, um, let's see what is happening. So you, you kind of want to pay attention. You want to scan not just your industry. You want to look at related industries. You want to look at what people in your industry are doing in other parts of the world. And when you see something happening, uh, decide how you're going to respond. So for some companies that are very agile, that have a a business plan that's designed that way, they can jump on a fad that is going to last for six weeks and then disappear. They can jump on a fad and make money. Whereas others are still looking at the fad and then discovering that it's, you know, three months old and it doesn't even exist anymore. Right. So even, even, you know, whether it's a mega trend or a very short-term fad, there is still an opportunity to, to get a business value out of that, but only if you're paying attention to them. And then, of course, there's also a gorgeous space in counter trends. So if you identify a trend and you say, well, I personally don't want my business to be going in that direction, then identify what, what is the counter trend, what is the exact opposite of what this trend looks like, and you will find a market for that. It's going to be a smaller niched market, but you will find people who want to operate opposite to how everyone else is, and that's fine. That's really interesting, counter trends, and it's got me thinking around doing the exact opposite, as you said, and niche markets, and I think we're finding today that focusing in on a niche market rather than being all things to all people, is often the winning ticket in business. Have you seen this time and time again? No, absolutely. Um, One of the the little examples in the book, and and a lot of the stories there are quite true, but 
we have great uh, indicators in terms of trends about, you know, mass production and automation and things that can happen um, quicker and faster and more efficiently and, and, and more cost effectively. And uh, in, the, in the story, the, the one character talks about the fact that she writes with a pen that is handcrafted. And it's actually, it's handcrafted by an old man who operates from a market within walking distance of where I live. And he literally makes pens out of the wood that he finds or that he buys on, on, on other markets. And he makes it in his garage. And he can tell you that the history of each pen, you know. Right. And, and he sells these pens to supplement his retirement income. And, and it's, it's not efficient, um, but it has a story. That pen has a story. And when you give it to someone else, you can tell them that story. And that makes it really special but it is far more cost-effective and efficient to go and buy a batch of pens from a, a market, you know, from a, from a regular retail store where they'd be mass-produced. But then you're going to buy 10 of the same and none of them have a story. So it, it's not, it depends on what you're trying to actually achieve with that business decision. But yeah, any trend that we're identifying, there's going to be a market for people who want to do things differently. And if we can find that market and service them and, and meet their needs, then that's also futures thinking. It's just because it's not automated doesn't mean that we're not actually thinking towards the future. This really taps on the door of, of the topic or the understanding, at least, that the future is not predefined. It's really up to us to, to do that. Can you expand on that? There's plenty of examples of, uh, you know, individuals in, in our history of, uh, who looked at the way politics were going or... Um, the way business was going and they've invented something or they've started a political movement. And then I'm not going to name, you know, the, the heroes that are springing to our minds as we think about this. Um, but those are people, you know, big movements start with individuals saying, I want to do something different. Um, changes in medical history start from people saying, you know, I, I've just lost a loved one to this, this illness and I'm going to address it. Uh, people have invented, you know, um, cars or taken us to the moon because, because they wanted to do something different. So when we look at, at how things are, are unfolding, very often because there, there's this mass of humanity and this mass of information that we find on the internet, we feel like this is, is moving and we can't do anything about it. But it is so easy for, for individuals with our social media and our communication to be able to stand up and say, why don't we try something different? And, and very often those movements are, are formed around individuals just stopping and saying, we don't actually have to go in this direction. There is another way, another direction that we could be going into. So for me, a lot of this comes down to, to awareness. We, we're so busy um, trying to keep pace with things that we don't stop to think about what do we actually want. So the first step in, in, in futures thinking is, is a bit of a philosophical step saying, am I satisfied? Am, am I satisfied with what I'm seeing that the, the world that my children are going into or the careers that my children are going into, uh, can I paint a different picture for myself, my family, the people, you know, my circle of, of influence. And when we start to paint those, those different pictures, we give each other permission to craft different futures. And when that energy comes together, um, we become conscious futurists, not just conscious leaders, but conscious futurists co-creating the futures that we actually want and, and every time anybody does that, we give more permission to more people uh, to not just uh, surrender to what is happening, but to redefine things. We, we, have, we have to define a whole lot of ethical questions 
at, at this present time that we've never had to address before because these issues weren't around. So, you know, the, the rights of, of, um, of, of robots, um, the uh, ethics of, of, you know, who owns the intellectual property designed by artificial intelligence. These are questions we've not had to define before. And we can sit back and let somebody else decide it or we can have a voice and, and start to express our opinions. And the more we do that, uh, the more we are helping to define the future that we have. We can't sit, you know, 20 years in the time look in the future and look back and say, well, I wish we had spoken up back then. This is the time to do it. It's such an important point. I think this question around ethics and especially AI and what's been revealed uh, with organizations like Cambridge Analytica are, are really front of mind. And what concerns me um, personally a little is that often these things appear as, you know, under the guise of something else, connectivity, relationship, you know, various different platforms, various different things. And even recently, I noticed that, of course, we all saw the app that ages you um, by, I don't know how many years, 20, 50 years, whatever it might be. And, of course, you know, that really is just a big collection, data collection point for facial recognition um, tech companies and government agencies. And it, it all sounds a little far-fetched um, saying that, of course, Facebook collecting our data for any reasons other than to advertise to us also seemed very far-fetched not so very long ago. So I think that um, for me, the, the awareness of the individual um, really has to be slightly heightened around the, question, the questions of ethics and futures, uh, simply because data is fundamental to all of that and who owns the data. So that can lead us into a whole lot of other discussions <laughs> around this. But one of the things you talk a lot about is that the issues are not really about AI, automation, self-driving cars, but rather about how we create purpose and meaning and relevance in a world that is really changing faster than we can almost adapt to it. Can you expand on this a little and, and give me I a bit can, more background? And, uh, but let's just kind of just step back slightly. You were talking about, uh, you know, all the automation, everything else in social media and what we find online. And it's, it's worth bearing in mind that if we're not paying for a product um, or a service, then, then we are the product yeah. that somebody is, is handing over to somebody else. And I think that uh, we, we've come to a place in the past, whenever there was intellectual property, somebody had to pay for it before they could access it. So uh, if you have a whole lot of insight and experience in something and I want access to it, I have to pay you a consulting fee to, to get that. But we've got, uh, we're in a place at the moment where people share their intellectual property very freely because they know that they have so much more value behind that. So we can give away a whole lot and people can access. And um, so people want, people now expect things for free online. Uh, they expect to be able to use certain services without paying, but right. but there, somebody has to pay. There has to be some sort of re remuneration at some point, um, and and so the the values are changing. So while we look at the shininess, uh, the you know what gets our attention being the automation and, and the artificial intelligence, and um, you know IBM Watson and, and what it can do, and the threats to to our jobs or to the traditional way we do things, we 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 look at all of those. Um, things that are more visual and identifiable and we get anxious about them. But what is really being challenged beneath that is 
is our personal values. Right. Um, am I still relevant in, in this situation? So it's not about, uh, if, you know, if a robot comes or automation comes and makes my job easier or relieves a whole lot of tasks from me, how am I relevant in this organization? What value do I really bring? Um, if, if a robot can replace me, then there has to be something, surely, hopefully, there has to be something that is unique and special about me that I'm bringing that automation can't do that, can't replicate that. And, and so we have to really dig deep into, uh, into what it means to be human, what it means to have connection. It, it's not about having, you know, thousands of followers online. It's about adding real value to each other's existence. Uh, and, and those questions of meaning and purpose and relevance uh, are the fundamental philosophical questions we've wrestled with since long before we had any kind of uh, first industrial revolution, let alone the fourth or the um, singularity. You know, this is the, the point of being human is to, is to understand this. Um, and that's why any conversation about future studies has to start with, uh, with a bit of philosophy about you know, why are we here and what are we trying to achieve? And, um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a very deep conversation that, that, that most, that most people shy away from, especially in business, you know, people don't want to talk about this in business. They want to talk about the business case and, and, you know, what is the bottom line? And we're saying it's not about the bottom line. It's about, you know, a quadruple bottom line. It's people, planets and profits and purpose. Why does your organization exist and, and beside the product that you're offering me, how does it make my life worth more? Are you selling me a widget to entertain me or distract me so that you can get a few more cents into your, into your coffers? Or are you creating something that makes my existence more meaningful? It's very interesting how, yeah, how futures and uh, conscious business are so well aligned very nice. uh, in, in that way. Certainly conscious leadership and building conscious businesses uh, really is is all about people, planet, profit, and purpose. You know, you can't get yeah. far away from that at all. And uh, it's it's fantastic how the two are very much lined up. I was recently working with an organisation to build an innovation course, and one of the foundations around it was, you know, how is this going to affect uh, our communities, our people, our businesses, the planet, you know, all, all of these big philosophical questions we have of, our, as you say, not, not new, but certainly they've been brought to the forefront in recent years. And one of the models that, um, the only model that really worked well with this was a futures model about, um, you know, using Steep, for example, and looking at multiple futures and yeah. playing out um, scenarios about the impact of, of what might occur in, across, you know, all of the participants, different businesses. So I think that when we look at futures and perhaps put it in the basket of academic, we really are missing the point, aren't we? Yeah, and um, around the world, the, the futures uh, conversation, the, the academic courses um, are, are fairly similar. There's, you know, the, the standard models. And uh, Stellenbosch was the first one that started with, uh, with philosophical um, curriculum. So they added philosophy into the curriculum right at the beginning. And, and when I started studying, I was, I was quite surprised by this. But, but very quickly, you, you know, you've got to have the basic philosophical understanding and the, you know, the original um, questions that, that we asked in philosophy. But very quickly, as you start to deal with the actual issues, you're realizing that it's not a, it's not a case of 
how this works or um, what this is going to be, but what should this be? You know, when we're looking at, at um, population density or population increases or um, ways to control population, that's a philosophical question at heart. It, it's, not, uh, it's not just about whether we have enough resources to feed that many people, but, but what should the standard of living be for people? So how would we pitch this? And yeah, and it's very challenging because we, especially in the Western world, you know, we kind of look at the, the philosophy majors as people who, who've got an interesting, you know, university background, but what are they really going to do in business? Uh, and the deeper you get into these things, the more we really need to have a handle on it. We just don't have enough language or experience in discussing this or enough comfort in, in, in the boardroom. It's, it's a very uncomfortable conversation in the boardroom. Yeah, it's very interesting how organizations today who aren't conscious are really losing market share day in, day out, simply because their audience does care. Their audience is vested in various different, uh, certainly environmental and societal changes that are going on and the way that we think life should be and what we think should be happening around the world. So, not even... 10 years ago, it would have been a nice thing to do to actually build in uh, looking at the impact of an organization on uh, broader aspects. Whereas today, if you're not doing it, you're certainly losing market share and therefore losing your losing profit. Is that something that is a common denominator in, in looking at this? Yes, we have so much more choice these days. Uh, so in the past, if you had limited choice and, and the product or service that you had to buy was um, didn't have a good impact, but you had to have it because it was an essential issue, whatever it was, uh, you would buy it and you would find a way to ignore the negative impact. But the more we become aware of, of the impact of our, our, our um, purchases, our, our consumption decisions, the more we understand that impact and the more choice we have, uh, the easier it is to say, I'm, I'm just not going to shop there anymore because of how they treat yeah. their staff or how they, they, uh, how they, you know, their, their value chain uh, is, is something that makes me feel very uncomfortable. So you make a decision to, to shop with a competitor who is more vocal about the decisions that they've made to make uh, better choices in terms of creating the product that you're about to consume. And, and we're prepared to pay a little bit more for that. Yeah. Uh, we're prepared to, you know, not to do with certain conveniences because there is another choice. And, and so now the, the more conscious companies and the more we're becoming aware of this and the more that people are talking about it, uh, the, even the more choices we have. And the, again, the permission it gives to, to other boardrooms to say, maybe we should relook at how we do business because, uh, there are people who don't want to do business with us because it's distasteful. And some companies are okay to live in that space uh, and, and some consumers will continue to be there. But for others, they're making a choice with how they spend their money or don't spend their money or uh, how, how, they come, how, how they experience the world uh, needs to be in line with the values that they have. And that's becoming more mainstream. Absolutely. And Charlotte, just to put this into sort of a broader context, most large organizations, global organizations tend to have a futurist sitting in their strategy team, don't they? Yes. So, so it's not as uncommon as we might think or as not as out there as we might think. At which point does this become mainstream, this type of thinking in business? 
I don't know. I'm, I'm hoping more so. Uh, I, I've looked at a couple of examples. On occasion, I look at a company and I see the decisions they're making. And I think, I wonder who their futurist is, because there's some very interesting decisions going on uh, in, in the background. Um, just an example here in, in South Africa, we have a financial company that put out a podcast. Now, it's a financial company that sells retirement plans. And they put out a podcast series about what it would look like if somebody lived to be 200 years old. Right. So they created this whole story around the 200-year-old and, uh, and, and discussed the impacts of, you know, relationships and age and employment and what jobs and careers look like and um, relationships with, with children and all the health issues and the impact on the health industry uh, if we can now live to be 200. And, and the story was so engaging and managed to cover so many of those issues and when you look at that, you think there's a really good futurist there because it's not, it's not about them putting out a, a product to entertain us or to make us think about um, what would it be like if we lived to be longer, we should make sure that we have enough retirement products. They were looking at their industry saying, if people, if health changes so that people can live longer, that has a direct impact on whether our product is valid or not. Um, who's going to buy a retirement product to retire at age, you know, you can take your money out at 55 if there's a chance that you could be living to be 105 right. in, in just a few years. So, so what does that mean? Um, and if we're trying to fund retirements, how much do people have to put in? And you can't tell them that, you know, to fund your retirement at 105, you need to be putting away, you know, this much money you know, so that the, the, the premiums look like a telephone number. Yeah. You know? um, <laughs> right. People can't face that. They, 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 can't, they can't prepare for something like that. So, so we have to tell the stories. We have to paint the pictures and, and, and explain the, those scenarios uh, so that we all get a handle on it. But that meant that they were preparing both their audience as well as their you know, actuarial teams and their marketing teams and, and everybody else in that company to, to think about the future differently so that they can respond. Yeah, absolutely. Design products to meet. So th there are so many big questions that I think a lot of people shy away from because it's just inexplicable. We have absolutely no idea uh, how we might cope uh, with that kind of outcome. And yet some of this looks very certain already, uh, according to various different industries and various different outcomes that we're seeing. Uh, what is it about human nature that we don't want to perhaps get into the future in that way? Is it because we don't have an answer for it, that we shy away from it? Or what is that push-pull that's going on? Well, isn't the fear of the unknown one of our biggest fears? Um, and, and if we don't know something, then we're very uncomfortable with it. So we try to avoid thinking about what, what it is we don't know. And, and that's why with our scenario planning and, and designing that I, I call it the worst case scenario. I don't think my academic colleagues would like me to do that. But uh, I, I had this experience many years ago in, a, in another business that I owned and uh, as an entrepreneur, and I was about to lose the business. And I went to an attorney to discuss what my options were. And he took me through the absolute worst case scenario of me losing this business and everything going very wrong. And it was an absolutely horrible experience. I'm sitting in his office in that moment in time, quite safe, but he was telling me what this would look like. And, and my heart was pounding. There was a noise in my ears. My hands were sweating. I thought I was going to faint in his office. And then he says, that's the worst case scenario. It may not happen like that. And he painted some other pictures. <laughs> right. And then he gave me 
the steps that I needed to take to make sure I didn't end up in that worst case scenario. And I walked out of there feeling physically ill, uh, mentally bewildered. But within a few minutes, you know, I, I remember I've written down the instructions and I took action on what I could to salvage what I could and to, uh, and to deal with, with the problems that, that, it, that it happened. And I, I wrapped the business up and I lost my money. And, and, and some of the things he talked about happened, but they didn't happen nearly as badly as he said, because I prepared myself emotionally and mentally and because, um, you know, I, I prepared all my paperwork and everything else. So when it happened, I was prepared and I, I weathered that storm so much easier than if I had buried my head and ignored it and had somebody knock on my door and physically come into my premises and, and do things to me. So when, when we fear that, that anxiety about the unknown, it takes a very courageous person to sit down and say, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go there. I'm going to think about this. You know, what happens if these things happen and my industry is, is completely undermined, uh, my job becomes null and void or the, the, the work that I do is irrelevant? What does that mean you know, for my career? What does that mean for my income? Uh, what does that mean for the business that I own, for the staff that I employ? And you have to go there and, and deal with it because that's the only way to deal with the emotions so that you've, you've dealt with those emotions in private. And then when the public situation happens, you're far more prepared. But it also gives you that space to say, to imagine, if that's the worst case scenario, what if we change just one or two of these parameters or, uh, or these variables? What else could this look like? And you can step back and create something that is, that is we are creative human beings. We, we're looking for, for solutions to problems. And, and this is the, the best problem we have. You know, what does our future look like? And how can we make it different? Right. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it's a scary thing, but, but we're, we're courageous enough to, we've, you know, humanity has faced bigger problems in the past. Absolutely. And, and Charlotte, this almost harps back to your, one of your earlier comments where you, you talked about building three futures, perhaps, you know, something that doesn't look so great, something that is idyllic and something middling. Yes. And being able to put the flags on the ground along all of those three routes. And for me, that's very much about, okay, if this happens, then I know where I am. I'm on this trajectory and I need to do something to shift Otherwise, it will continue pretty much in the same vein. Yeah. So um, really having that ability to not predict the future, but certainly mold the future according to where you want to go and what you want to do. And, and for me, that's almost giving, you know, taking power back or giving mm. the company or the organization or the leadership team the power to make decisions from a, a different perspective, a perspective that doesn't say that I'm just doomed and this market is, you know, trundling along and we're going to be out of business soon because this trend will not continue. Uh, okay. Rather to actually build the future proactively and actively uh, mm. so that you are able to mold it and define it and at least be in the game. That's right. And, and that exercise also allows you to, to identify two things. One is, you know, what are those big things that are happening that I cannot do anything about. So how, do I, how am I going to respond to it? You know, is there a legislation that limits what I'm doing or is there uh, a, an invention that is going to impact? And I cannot do anything about that um, other than respond. And then the other part is what are the choices we're making? So, you know, how big your organization is, whether you're employing people full time or, you know, on a, on a gig basis, um, all of those are decisions in your, in your, that you have control over. 
Yeah. But you, you, need to, you need to go through those exercises to work out which those are. And, and then you can develop those responses and you can develop, you know, a set of uh, decisions that you can be making around your business. And once you have that, you have so many more tools at your, at your disposal. So we, we go in thinking this is happening. I can't do anything about it. But you, after you've done the work, you're going, you know, we, we got all of these tools, all of these resources, all these potential decisions. And now you're going to start, you know, putting together something that will allow you to craft your future. Charlotte, that's been so insightful. Thank you so much. I know that uh, you deliver Futures Masterminds, and I've attended a couple myself, which were really fantastic. And um, I know that you, you speak as well for organizations and, and consulting too. Do you go in and work with organizations? Yes, I do. Um, to, to a limited degree, I can help uh, organizations get started. If they want to do a very long-term project, then I'll introduce them to academic colleagues of mine that, that do that very well. Um, I like to help them to, you know, paint those pictures and imagine their futures in the first place and and also to help the, the leadership teams talk to their, their staff. Uh, very, often, very often you find a leader in a company who is very... Uh, very futures thinking. Uh, they've, they've got some insight. They're inspired. They're visionary, and they can't always communicate that well to people who are executing the, the work of that organization and have other issues and, and maybe don't have the uh, the benefit of the perspective that that you know the, the leadership has. So sometimes it's helpful to um, have somebody else come in and and get the uh, the, the teams kind of catching up in terms of the pace and, and the ideas and the vision uh, that the leader already has. Brilliant. Thanks, Charlotte. Well, I'm, as I said, I'm certainly loving your book so far and look forward to um, continuing to attend your Futures Masterminds, which are always mind-blowingly good. <laughs> so, Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. It's been Thanks, really, Davis. really insightful, as I said. And um, yeah, look forward to talking to you soon. Wonderful. Thank you very much for the opportunity to share with you and for all the, the insight and uh, conversations we've already shared around these. Yeah. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Lift. I'm delighted you're here. If you'd like to connect with Charlotte, head over to my website, mowbraybydesign.com where you'll find the show notes and relevant links. Whilst you're there, don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes or any of your favorite platforms to never miss an episode. And if you're loving Lyft, I'd really appreciate a rating in iTunes or simply share with a friend who needs a Lyft. You can get in touch with me for coaching or speaking engagements by sending an email to louise at mowbraybydesign.com or click on the contact button on my site. Until next time, lift yourself, lift another.